bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 1st, 2011. I will start this week's podcast by discussing the draft tax reform plan that Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp released last week. Then, I'll share an update on the Super Committee's progress, as well as an update on the status of federal appropriations and the launch of the Bipartisan Housing Commission. Then, in our historic tax credit section, I'll review the brief filed by the IRS in its appeal of the historic Boardwalk Hall case. I will also preview the next meeting of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll discuss the provisions of the Community Wind Act, which would extend the investment tax credit to smaller community wind projects. Then, I will summarize the key points of two new private letter rulings issued by the IRS on energy topics. I will also review the findings of project-level audits released by the Office of Inspector General, which has been auditing energy projects that received Section 1603 cash grants. I will wrap up our energy section with a state-level update from Oklahoma, where a task force met last week to consider the state's energy tax incentives. In our low-income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss the 2012 Difficult Development Areas, or DDAs. These were released last week. I'll also share some interesting information that we've learned about the IRS's audits of multifamily rental housing bonds. Our last housing update will be good news for Massachusetts, where the governor last week approved $20 million in additional state low-income housing tax credits for 2013 and 2014. Finally, in our new markets tax credit discussion, I'll welcome the CDFI Fund's new deputy director, Dennis Nolan. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp unveiled an international tax reform discussion draft. His proposal would lower the top tax rate for both individuals and corporations to 25%. Chairman Camp says this rate reduction would be accomplished without, that's right, without increasing the deficit. It would do this by broadening the tax base. As most listeners know, broadening the base is accomplished by cutting or eliminating tax deductions, tax credits, as well as income exclusions. While many in the business community have expressed strong support for a top corporate tax rate of 25%, some tax policy experts estimate that all corporate tax expenditures would have to be repealed in order to finance a tax rate at that level. Such a broad repeal of corporate tax expenditures likely would include the elimination of the low-income housing tax credit, the new markets tax credit, the historic tax credit, and renewable energy tax credits. Now, ironically, these tax credits are viewed as corporate tax credits because the tax credit community has been effective at selling these credits, in essence, to corporations as opposed to individuals in order to maximize their value. 
If you're interested in learning more about this, I invite you to visit my blog post, Breaking the Corporate Tax Expenditure Shackle. It's my view that these tax expenditures should not be viewed as corporate tax expenditures, where they would be ranked seventh. They should be viewed in the broader context of all tax expenditures, where the 31st or 32nd in terms of size. Now, in announcing the draft release, Chairman Camp said that the Ways and Means Committee continues to examine base broadening measures, measures that would replace the revenue foregone by reducing the corporate tax rate under his proposal. However, specific base broadening measures were not, that's right, were not included in the October 26th discussion draft. In addition to tax rate cuts, the proposal would transition the United States from a worldwide system of taxation to a territorial system. So in some measure, the proposal was more about international tax as opposed to corporate tax or overall comprehensive tax reform. Chairman Camp did invite comments and input from the public on his plan. And his specific request was that employers, academics, practitioners, and workers add their voices to the legislative process. Let's turn now to the Supercommittee. Reports regarding the progress being made by the Joint Select Committee for Deficit Reduction, or Supercommittee, are mixed. Publicly, most Supercommittee members continue to express optimism that a deal can be reached. But at the same time, unnamed aides report that the group is quickly reaching an impasse on the same issues that stymied previous debt reduction efforts. And while the Supercommittee officially faces a November 23rd deadline, just a few short weeks away, that's the deadline to agree on a debt reduction plan and have legislative language in place that has been scored. The unofficial deadline for an initial agreement is actually much sooner, and this is because of the time it would take to score and write legislative language. At last week's public hearing, Supercommittee member and House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Fred Upton asked CBO Director Doug Elmendorf for the latest date the Supercommittee could provide a draft to the Congressional Budgets Office in order to have that proposal scored and leave enough time for the committee to vote prior to the November 23rd deadline. Director Elmendorf warned the committee that time is running short. He said, and I quote, Our legion of skilled analysts are working very hard for this committee already. Just as a side note, his reference to skilled analysts was in some ways a retort to Congressman Upton, who had referred to those that work within the CBO's office as, quote, worker bees. So continuing the quote, or beginning the quote again, our legion of skilled analysts, not worker bees, are working very hard for this committee already. Continuing the quote, if you have a set of proposals that would make changes across a range of mandatory spending programs, then that would require us some weeks to work with Legislative Council and the staff of this committee in order in refining the language to accomplish the objectives that you're setting out to accomplish, and then for us to produce a cost estimate. Close quote. Without setting a specific date, Director Elmendorf said the Supercommittee would need to submit the proposal at the beginning of November. And as you know, November started today. Now also, the Supercommittee is scheduled to hold another public hearing today, November 1st. At today's hearing, the principal architects of two previous deficit reduction proposals will testify. Those two proposals, 
and those testifying on behalf of the two proposals. For the first one, we have former White House Budget Director Alice Rivlin, as well as former Senate Senator Pete Domenici. They're going to be on the first panel. And then in the second panel, you have former Senator Alan Simpson and former Presidential Chief of Staff Erskine Bowles. Now let's turn to the federal budget for fiscal year 2012. The Hill reported last week that House Republicans began drafting a continuing resolution that would fund the federal government from November 18th through the Christmas break. November 18th is when the last continuing resolution that was passed expires. The House and the Senate have yet to agree on any of the 12 appropriations bills that must pass to approve federal spending for fiscal year 2012. The Senate is said to be working to approve a package of three appropriations bills. They'd be rolled into what's being called not an omnibus, but a minibus. That minibus package includes funding for the Departments of Commerce, Justice, Agriculture, Transportation, and Housing and Urban Development. If passed, the package would be sent to a conference committee where the Hill reports the continuing resolution could be added. The continuing resolution would include funding for all federal departments and agencies other than those specifically funded in the minibus. The remaining appropriations bills would then be back on the table for Congress to consider after Thanksgiving, either in one final large omnibus package or in a series of additional minibuses. I also want to note this week that on October 22nd of last week, the Bipartisan Policy Center announced the launch of a bipartisan housing commission that will address the long-term challenges that face the housing sector. Last week, at its launch, the commission's staff members were introduced, and then the four co-chairs were introduced. Those co-chairs are former Secretaries of Housing and Urban Development Henry Cisneros and Mel Martinez, as well as former Senator Kit Bond and former Senate Majority Leader and BPC founder George Mitchell. Rick Lazio, former member of Congress, moderated a Q&A session for about 30 minutes, but for the most part, the responses were very broad and general. In fact, Senator Bond explicitly said that he was going to save any real thoughts for discussions within the new group. Their broad intention is to look past housing policy to evaluate what has worked and what hasn't. They will then turn to the future and develop a comprehensive housing strategy. Their goal is to fashion the policy in a bipartisan way that has some practical basis for enactment. Eventually, the Commission is expected to have 18 members, but the Commissioners have not yet been named. The group plans to publish a report in the first quarter of 2013. When asked, given the severity of the current crisis, if they would put anything forward sooner than 2013, Senator Bond simply said no. Senator Bond indicated that anything they would come up with on a shorter time frame would be a Band-Aid, and that isn't what they're trying to do. Furthermore, Senator Bond said the chances of Congress doing anything substantial in housing in 2012 was slim to none, with the latter being more likely. So this will be interesting to see what the Bipartisan Housing Commission comes up with, and over time we'll continue to track it as additional information. Then I want to close the general, session, the general discussion here 
with notice about a hearing that's being held tomorrow, Wednesday, November 2nd. The House Financial Services Committee's Insurance, Housing, and Community Opportunity Subcommittee, along with the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, is holding a joint hearing. And this joint hearing is entitled Fraud in the HUD Home Program. This hearing is expected to have home, the home program and its targets. In some ways, this hearing is a follow-up to the Washington Post articles of a few months ago. And the housing industry is definitely concerned about the hearing and will report about what testimony is given at the hearing in next week's podcast. In historic tax credit news, on October 27th, the IRS filed its brief in the Third Circuit on its appeal in the historic Boardwalk Hall case. In its brief, the IRS challenges the allocation of 99.9% of the historic rehabilitation tax credits to the investor and is challenging it on three grounds. One, the investor was not a partner in the partnership because the investor did not have a meaningful stake in the success or failure of the enterprise. Two, the partnership was a sham partnership. And three, that the partnership was not the owner of the property for federal tax purposes. Historic Tax Credit Coalition founder and Journal of Tax Credits columnist John Lee Tetrell will discuss the IRS's brief in detail in his next column for the Journal of Tax Credits. And if you're not already receiving the Journal of Tax Credits, I encourage you to give it a try. If you send an email to products at novaco.com, we'll send you a free trial copy. In the meantime, you can find a copy of the IRS brief online at www.historictaxcredits.com. Also last week, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation announced that it will meet on Thursday, November 10th. Advisory Council on Historic Preservation meetings are open to the public if you're interested in attending. The Council was established by the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, and its purpose is to advise the President and Congress on National Historic Preservation Policy. The Council also comments on federal, federally assisted, and federally licensed undertakings that have an effect upon properties listed in or eligible for inclusion in the National Register of Historic Places. Now, according to the agenda published last week on November 10th, the Council will discuss topics including a National Park Service call to action as well as federal preservation funding for disaster recovery. A complete agenda and additional information about the meeting can be found in the notice that was published on October 26th. That notice can be downloaded from www.historictaxcredits.com. A complete agenda and additional information about the meeting can be found in the notice that was published on October 26th. That notice can be downloaded from www.historictaxcredits.com. Turning to renewable energy tax credit news, on October 20th, Senators Al Franken and John Tester introduced legislation that would expand the Small Wind Investment Tax Credit, or ITC, to projects with capacity of up to 20 megawatts. The Community Wind Act, it's entitled, and it's Senate Bill 1741, and it would expand the turbine-based ITC to wind projects and does not restrict turbine size. According to a summary of the bill, projects that qualify for the ITC under the new law would, to prevent double dipping, no longer qualify for the production tax credit, or PTC. 
Now, supporters of the measure say that it would promote the local production of wind energy by providing tax credits to more community wind projects. Senator Franken reports that the legislation has the support of more than 40 energy stakeholders in Minnesota and many, many more across the country. A copy of the Community Wind Act is available online at www.energytaxcredits.com. We've also posted links to a summary of the bill as well as a letter of support from energy stakeholders that was cited by Senator Franken. On Friday, October 21st, the IRS posted two new private letter rulings about two renewable energy tax credit issues, and we didn't have time to cover it in last week's podcast. The first ruling is PLR 2011-42005. This ruling discusses whether or not a battery that manages the output of power is a storage device or a piece of transmission equipment. Generally speaking, storage devices can be eligible for the tax credit while transmission equipment is not. This ruling is of particular interest because Treasury has been known to question or challenge costs that are not necessary for the production of renewable energy. The IRS's conclusion in this case was that the battery in question qualified as a storage device and as such was tax credit eligible. The second ruling is PLR Private Letter Ruling 2011-42022, and it discusses whether or not a single-member LLC that initiates a renewable energy project will be respected as the owner of the project after the LLC is expanded to include an initial limited partner. This ruling is likely of interest to those who may be in the process of setting up single-member LLCs in order to safe harbor Section 1603 cash grants for projects that won't have an investor until 2011. In the private letter ruling, the IRS concluded that the ultimate LLC will, that's right, will be respected as the owner and will qualify for the ITC or the Section 1603 cash grant when the initial limited partner or LLC member is admitted. Copies of these rulings can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have questions about the private letter rulings, I encourage you to call my partner, Tony Gapone, in our Boston office. Now, turning to 1603 cash grant audits, as we first reported in the July 12th podcast, the Treasury Office of the Inspector General, or the OIG, is releasing audits of projects that receive Section 1603 energy cash grants. To date, the OIG has released five of the 14 project audits that it's conducting on projects that receive grant money in lieu of investment tax credits. So far, OIG has reviewed two solar and three wind projects, projects that were placed in service between March and September of 2009. The three wind projects are the Pyron Wind Farm and the Innendale Wind Farm near Roscoe, Texas, and the Grove Wind Farm in Stevenson County, Illinois. The two solar projects that were reviewed and released are the Solar One Project in Boulder City and the Sierra Sun Tower in Lancaster, California. OIG conducted the audits between March 2010 and May 2011, and the purpose was to determine the project's Section 1603 award eligibility and the accuracy of claim project costs. Now, during these audits, Treasury representatives visited the sites and company headquarters, they interviewed key personnel and the accountants, they reviewed the grant application and related documents, 
and they reviewed the documentation that was used to support the project's claim costs. OIG found that ineligible project costs resulted in overpayment to four of the five projects audited so far. The ineligible costs cited by OIG included some of the following, late payment costs, insurance premiums on unused equipment, permit fees, data collection systems, unsupported or ineligible labor and equipment costs, and road construction. The largest cost discrepancy was at the Grove Wind Project. OIG's audit questioned more than $6 million in costs, which resulted in a potential overpayment of more than $2 million. The majority of the question costs result from late payment penalties and spare part costs under the project's turbine supply agreements. Now, Grove's owners have refuted OIG's findings, saying that the charges are consistent with industry practices. Treasury has said that it plans to look into the matter further to determine the exact amount it will seek to reclaim. Treasury has also said it will seek repayment from the Innendale Wind Farm, Nevada Solar One, and Sierra Sun Tower projects. Now, the amounts to be returned in these cases are much, considerably smaller. They range from a low of $611, that's right, $611, up to $35,000. These five audits will be discussed in more detail in the December issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. The audit reports themselves can be found online on the Rural Energy Tax Credit Resource Center at www.energytaxcredits.com. Now, it will be interesting to see what the next nine audits reveal about the grants awarded and the owners reporting of project costs. OIG has also said it will release a monitoring report on the program itself soon. We'll post that, as well as the other nine project reports, to our Energy Tax Credit Resource Center when it becomes available. Now, let's turn to Oklahoma for a state tax credit panel update. As we reported this summer, Oklahoma is one of many states in a growing trend of lawmakers scrutinizing state tax credit programs for possible elimination. In the historic tax credit segment of this podcast, on July 19th, we reported that a 10-person task force is meeting to analyze some of Oklahoma's state tax credit programs. The Task Force for the Study of State Tax Credits and Economic Incentives, the name of this task force, was authorized in the waning days of the state's 2011 legislative session. At the meetings, at the inaugural meeting of the group, the members discussed the state's historic tax credit. Now, at its most recent meeting, last week, the panel turned its attention to state tax credits offered to the coal and wind power industries in Oklahoma. The panel of lawmakers and other state officials analyzed a $5 per ton state tax credit for the production and purchase of Oklahoma coal, as well as tax credits offered to producers of electric power at zero-emissions facilities and for the manufacturing of small wind turbines. The task force is studying the economic impact of incentives to determine if some of those incentives could be eliminated to help support a state budget that has seen revenue shortfalls of hundreds of millions of dollars in recent years. Task Force Co-Chairman Representative David Dank specifically criticized the tax credit's transferability. He said that it was a major concern that, and I quote, state policy has apparently created a whole new industry of brokering and buying and selling transferable tax credits, like a big swap meet with millions being traded back and forth, close quote. He also claimed that the tax credits are used with, and I'll quote again, no accountability, 
no transparency, no auditing, and no controls, close quote. And while previous studies of tax subsidies have not produced dramatic results, Chairman Dank did add that he's adamant that the group's efforts would lead to passage of legislation next year. So we'll continue to monitor the developments in Oklahoma and report back as they become uh, more significant. In low-income housing tax credit news, last week the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development released a notice that announces the designation of Difficult Development Areas, or DDAs, for 2012. These designations are for purposes of the low-income housing tax credit. HUD makes new DDA designations annually. LHTC projects in DDAs, or those in Qualified Census Tracts, or QCTs, are eligible for as much as a 30% increase in low-income housing tax credits. Now, the new list designates DDAs for each of the 50 states, as well as District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, American Samoa, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, while DDAs were updated, there were no new QCT determinations. The designation of QCTs, published on October 6, 2009, still remain in effect. We've actually, we're actually making inquiries into the HUD to determine when QCTs will be updated for the 2010 census data. Once we know back, we'll report to you in a future podcast. Now, Novogratz and Company has reviewed the list of new DDAs, and we have compiled a comparison to show which areas have been added and which have been deleted. Now, that comparison chart is online at www.tashredhousing.com. But just to give you a sense, in the metropolitan area DDA categories, San Benito County and Santa Clara County in California were added. However, Salinas and Santa Rosa Petaluma MSAs, which make up Sonoma County, were deleted. There weren't weren't any other additions in the metropolitan area, but there were some other deletions across the country. Namely, Arizona lost the Prescott, Arizona MSA. Florida lost the Northport, Sarasota MSA. And New Jersey lost the Vineland, Bridgetown MSA. Now, turning to non-metropolitan MSAs, and I won't be able to go through all of them because there are too many, there were 70 additions and 48 deletions. Of note, of the 48 deletions, 16 DDAs were eliminated in Texas, and conversely, 40 non-metro DDAs were added in the state of Mississippi. Interestingly enough, with respect to Mississippi, there are a total of 65 non-metro counties in Mississippi, and now 58 of those 65, or nearly 90%, are DDAs. Now, in addition to announcing the 2012 DDA designations, HUD also invited public comment. Specifically, they invited public comment on whether or not it should use small area fair market rents rather than metropolitan area fair market rents in future designations of metropolitan DDAs. HUD says that a change like that would more widely distribute DDAs to metropolitan areas around the country, wider than the current methodology. And as such, HUD says that the change would encourage the development of local housing tax credit and taxes and bond financed housing in neighborhoods with potentially greater opportunities for resident employment and education. Now, if you want to comment on this proposal, please do so before December 27th. Now, if you have any questions about the new DDAs and most significantly about transition rules 
if you're working on a project in a DDA now that won't be in a DDA next year, I invite you to contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office. Now, I want to turn now to IRS audits of multifamily housing bond deals. The bond buyer reported last month that the IRS was planning focused audits of multifamily housing bonds. Novogratian Company has since learned that the IRS is working on focused audits of approximately 75, yes, 75, multifamily rental housing taxes and bond transactions. Stephen Chamberlain, who is a senior manager in the IRS's tax and bonds office, said that while developing its compliance plans last year, the tax and bond office identified multifamily housing bonds as an area that it had not examined in several years. Now, the scope of the audits is broad. Steve Chamberlain said that the IRS is examining a laundry list of items, including specific statutory qualification under Section 142. The IRS sent out initial letters to bond issuers in early summer, and they're in the process of identifying which transactions they're going to pursue further. The audit process will likely conclude around the beginning of next year, Mr. Chamberlain said. Now, we'll continue to monitor the situation, and as developments warrant, we'll report back in future podcasts. I now want to turn to the state of Massachusetts with some good news on the state tax credit front. Last week, Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick signed a $169 million supplemental budget bill that provides significant investments in job creation projects. How does it do this? Well, of interest to our listeners, the bill includes $20 million to support affordable housing projects. Specifically, the supplemental budget bill raises the cap on the state loan housing tax credit by $10 million in 2013 and $10 million in 2014. This represents a doubling of the state's loan housing tax credits for those years. The Citizens Housing and Planning Association, or CHAPA, reports that without this increase, the State Department of Housing and Community Development would have had to choose between funding two Hope Six developments in South Boston and Taunton or funding other affordable housing developments that had applied for low-income housing tax credits. CHAPA says that more than 50 developers are seeking state and federal low-income housing tax credits. It's estimated that this supplemental budget increase will allow an estimated 25, yes, 25 additional developments to move forward. I'll close this section on the low-income housing tax credit with a note. The Internal Revenue Service is seeking applications for vacancies on the Advisory Committee on Tax-Exempt and Government Entities. The committee provides a venue for public input on relevant areas of tax administration. Members of the committee are appointed by the Department of Treasury, and they serve two-year terms that begin in June of 2012. If you're interested, applications will be accepted through December 1, 2011. Now, one of the benefits of the committee itself is it allows the IRS to receive regular input on administrative policy and procedures of the Tax Exempt and Government Entities Division. Applications, if you're interested, can be submitted in a letter or you can complete an online application on irs.gov. In either case, the IRS says that applications should reflect your proposed qualifications. That seems pretty obvious. Now, a notice was published in the October 24th Federal Register that contains more details about the committee and the application process. In new market tax credit news, last Friday, 
the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, the CDFI Fund, released data collected on mar new market tax credit projects that were financed through fiscal year 2010. The CDFI Fund is reporting that through the fiscal year 2010 reporting period, Community Development Entities, or CDEs, dispersed a total of nearly $21 billion in qualified equity investment proceeds to about 3,000 qualified businesses. The CDFI Fund says that about 2,500 of those qualified businesses, or 80%, were located in metropolitan areas. These qualified businesses received about $18 billion in new market tax credit financing. That's about 87.5% to date. Furthermore, over 500 qualified businesses, or just under 20%, were located in non-metropolitan areas. And these qualified businesses have received about $2.6 billion in new market tax credit financing. Furthermore, the CDFI Fund reports that about 1,400 qualified businesses were real estate businesses. So that's actually just under 50%. Now this is interesting because that means that there were actually a larger number of non-real estate qualified businesses or operating businesses that were funded. To be exact, over 1,500 non-real estate qualified businesses, over 50% of the total were funded through 2010. Now, of course, in terms of dollars, real estate qualified businesses received about $12.5 billion in new market tax credit financing, and that's about 60% of the total based upon dollar measurements. Operating businesses, while greater number, did receive less financing per transaction. So operating businesses received just under $8 billion in new market tax credit financing, and that's about 37% of the total. If you're wondering where the difference is, about 100 qualified businesses, or about 3%, were actually loans or investments made through other CDEs. Now, in addition to a summary of the data, the CDFI Fund also released a report that lists all qualified businesses financed by CDEs through fiscal year 2010. They also released a map of qualified businesses financed by CDEs for the same period. Now, once we get the census-level data with respect to all these qualified businesses, the New Market Tax Credit Working Group will update its online mapping software. So stay tuned. Now, turning to the appointment of a new deputy director, last week the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund announced the appointment of Dennis Nolan to serve as its deputy director. As deputy director, Mr. Nolan will be responsible for taking the lead in developing policies, operating procedures, internal controls, and short and long-range strategic plans as well as coordinating, evaluating, and enhancing the CDFI Fund's programs. Prior to the CDFI Fund, Mr. Nolan was Deputy Chief Financial Officer in the Department of Administration and Finance at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Mr. Nolan has more than 25 years of experience in federal financial management. Prior to the Millennium Challenge Corporation position, he held positions with the Environmental Protection Agency as well as the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Before joining the federal government, Mr. Nolan spent two years in public accounting and was also the chief financial officer of a 13-branch bank in Florida. We at Novograd and Company welcome Mr. Nolan to the CDFI Fund, and we look forward to working with him in the future. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novograd, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.
This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogradic Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogradic and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.